the Jubilee with all the fire we can breathe. Headline that caught our eyes since the last time we recorded. Apparently the FDA has just now approved the first fast-acting antidepressant to treat postpartum depression. This pill has a weird name. It doesn't matter. We're not giving you medical advice. But the idea is that all of the current antidepressants target serotonin, that the women suffering from postpartum depression have a different chemical imbalance. Mm -hmm. And so this increases the amount of some steroid in the mother's body and would resolve those feelings of wanting to harm the baby quickly before that the baby's in danger is the idea. Wait, is this taken like in emergency cases or this is taken this is taken as like a daily antidepressant? From what I saw, it's a new tool that's available for doctors to prescribe for women suffering from postpartum depression. I don't think it's okay. a long term thing. It's like, hey, I'm having these symptoms here, take this pill. How much do you know about antidepressants in general? I'm curious. I don't know much at all. I'm curious if you take these things, is there like long-term effects where it suppresses your natural ability to maintain serotonin levels, for example, if that, you take your typical antidepressant? Yeah, that's a good question. And as a psych major, I should have remembered some it's of okay. that. I think you don't really learn about the medicine part until you do like your... Well, not formally, but we talked about it. If I remember correctly, that's a concern, but I don't know yeah. that it's been documented. I know there are so many different kinds of serotonin reuptake inhibitors that maybe some have that risk, some don't. So serotonin and not dopamine? I don't know that. I don't know anything about anything. No, all these neurotransmitters do different things in your okay. brain. Um, like the drug that you take, caffeine. Mm -hmm. blocks the adenosine from Chase making you feel... Chase loves to point out that that's a drug because he doesn't drink coffee, so he has, like, superiority complex. You know that drug that you take every morning? What? It makes you feel like you're awake when your body's trying to tell you to go to sleep. Yeah, it's awesome. So <laughs> these other chemicals are targeting other neural pathways okay. to try and produce And have we response. determined if those are safe for breastfeeding? So as safe as right. what is and safe who, yeah, yeah, and who defines what safe is. I'm looking at it recently kind of like hormonal birth control. That was prescribed for everything, <laughs> and we're discovering that it is a little... Uh, Over-inclusive over is the wrong word. It has more widespread effects than it's horrible. just whatever yeah. <laughs> you're trying to do. I heard someone reference... Um, the birth control pill is the cigarette of our generation. Yeah, that makes sense. Like everybody was smoking and now we're horrified. Yeah, yeah. at what we've done to ourselves. All the our young children. women are mm -hmm. messing with their hormones and their fertility. And yeah, we wonder why there are so many problems like polycystic ovaries and whatever. I once tried to find the specific stat to see what percentage of moms, new moms, are on antidepressants because anecdotally I was getting the impression that it is a lot and I was getting that impression just through the way that our communities are structured anymore was through these online communities that I'm a part of these mom groups all the women posting there saying they're on antidepressants I mean I yeah I would tell you every night 
I would read these long threads about a problem that a woman was having. And it was mostly just like general, like, I am tired with a capital T. Like, I am fatigued or I'm struggling, not losing my temper with my kids, whatever, marital problems, all of it. And then in the comments, when moms would try and give advice to each other, almost every single one of them would say, well, the solution is Xanax or just like, here, I'm here to help. You need to get on an antidepressant. They were all on a pill. Hmm. Now, Xanax is an anti-anxiety drug. That's a benzodiazepine. Or maybe That's it wasn't what Jordan Xanax. Peterson. I don't really know much about this stuff. Um, no, but it's either Xanax or Zoloft. Zoloft. Or, That's okay. what it is. I knew it was zzz at the beginning. So Zoloft <laughs> is an SSRI. Um, that's the serotonin okay. triggering thing. The big concern, so getting back to what I was saying about hormonal birth control, some of the long-term effect, some of the long-term effects of using antidepressants are a reduced sex drive, reduced motivation to do anything. You might not be depressed, but you're still like a blob. The people talk about having this haze. Well, and I know that we're going to get to this later because we're doing the review for the main part of today's episode. But I'm glad that they included that really rough postpartum scene in the movie. Mm. Op- mm-hmm. Is it Oppen- or Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. Um, and she was just basically an angry drunk throughout the whole film. That's all I'll say about her. But there was, before there were antidepressants, women had alcohol, right? So these housewives were just drunk all the time to numb the pain before we had these pills available to them when you still see moms joking about wine day moms, drinking and yeah putting wine in the mm-hmm. sippy cup yeah and they're probably also medicated on top of that yeah i'm kind of dancing around the question why because well that's what i thought too so we saw the fda approve this pill at the same time the wall street journal ran this story about one in five new mothers is struggling mm-hmm having a really hard time. Even if you're looking forward to having a kid and you have a somewhat of a support structure, it still seems harder now to be a new mom. Well, and the before. news that broke too, just this week, I was looking it up before we started. New York City cancer doctor kills herself and her baby, police say. There was a beautiful young mom who, and all these reports, like page six reports, liked to mention that she lived in a million dollar home. So wealthy mom and the baby... Like the comments on social media lead me to believe that she was under a year old. Eight weeks I saw a couple of times, but most big publications aren't giving the age of the baby. But she was an oncologist at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. So like very highly educated, um, capable woman, working woman, shoots herself and her baby. And the police say it's a classic murder-suicide. Ah, I hadn't seen that. And what's weird is that both of her parents were in the house when it happened. The mom's parents. Yeah, like they were in town to help with the baby. Or something. Wow. And so then they heard a gunshot. They saw, thought something had fallen to the ground. They went upstairs to check on what it was. And then on their way up, there was a second gunshot. And I'm like Jordan Peterson. I'm just going to cry all the time. I think about the fact that the kids will probably listen to these podcasts maybe they won't maybe their parents will just be stupid for the rest of their life when they get older but maybe they will listen to these podcasts and so I want to say everything with that in mind like I have had an incredibly 
privileged postpartum period both times after both kids. But like, I could feel the brink coming. And it's terrifying. Not murdering and killing. I've never felt that. But like yelling and rage. And it's horrifying. Like, I'm so glad that's not on film myself yeah in those weeks when the baby's just crying and crying yeah yeah and so what i'm saying is i'm sure that i'm assuming i'm not sure i'm assuming this mom was in this place because everything else about her life tells me that she wasn't a crazy person you can't become an oncologist as a crazy person and take care of sick women in this capacity as a crazy person like, not violently insane, you think? Well, I'm hesitating because you said oncologist with a new baby, and I'm thinking about how much schooling goes into becoming an oncologist. So how old was this woman? 40. And so how difficult was it for her to get pregnant? Oh, I'm sure she was under an insane amount of stress. Well, not pressure. only that, to become an oncologist as a woman... She probably had to work harder and mm-hmm. faced criticism. Maybe not today. Like it's hard because you have it's not a, quite affirmative action, but you have that people want there to be successful female doctors. So maybe it helped her. Maybe it held her back. It's hard to weigh that balance. But to get to where she was at a prestigious hospital in a big city, she probably had to be perfect. And this is where I'm going with that. I wonder if having the baby was harder than she expected Mm. and she's not used to coping with failure because she's had to be perfect her entire life to get to where she was. And maybe that was what was overwhelming. Yeah, that's a good theory. Especially if the baby is eight weeks old, her body's destroyed, her mind's destroyed, she's not getting any sleep, and then she's looking down at this thing that she knows is forever and she goes, am I ever going to get back to everything that I worked for my entire life to achieve? Yeah. Yeah, you start to feel that crisis. Yeah, I've been there. But her parents were there. Like, I assume this was like a single mom with no No, hot, very beautiful people. Pictures of her and her husband. They look like Barbie dolls. But she's not alone. Like, obviously, other women are feeling so unsafe in their own current emotional state that they're going to doctors to become medicated. And a lot of those women probably really in their heart of hearts want to be good moms. And for that reason, they go to the doctor to get these pills. Well, the doctor says a lot of women take this. It helps you feel better. This is what moms take so that they can be good moms. And then everybody has this reaction that's like, these the comments and this story about this woman who shot herself and her baby, all of the comments say, our healthcare system is failing. We provide no postpartum support. And like the we and the system words are incredibly vague. Who exactly is it that you want to be providing support to these moms? Because you go into your OB appointment at six weeks and if they're a decent OB, they'll turn and they'll look at you and then they'll look deep into your soul and they'll say, but how are you? And then I couldn't help but cry because nobody had asked me that question in six weeks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But she's not actually asking to like provide care if I say that I'm struggling. She's asking me that in that way to write me a prescription for a pill if I say that I feel some type of way. Yeah. So it comes off as a personal question, but it's not. It's purely medical. 
And it's not some sterile third party government private whatever system that's supposed to be providing this postpartum support. This is supposed to be a familial community effort to provide the support for these new moms. And I read these accounts of what happens in tribal communities in Africa. Most often a new mom won't even see her baby for the first two weeks unless it's to breastfeed it. Because they understand that childbirth is such a physical event for the mother that she has to like adequately recover go figure mm-hmm. and so they'll take the baby and hold it a rocket feed it whatever not feed they'll be in the home or around the home and have the child while the mom recovers and just bring it to her to nurse they got to make sure the baby survives so it can go to the cobalt mine chase <laughs> did you <laughs> feel uncomfortable there needed to be some comedic relief no, I'm just, Africa's a big place, so I'm not sure which communities you have in mind. I'm just thinking, well, it's kind of the same argument people make about the paleo diet. What? Like, oh, our ancestors only ate berries and unleavened bread or whatever, but they died at 30. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, okay, these African tribes have more support systems for postpartum care, but... I'm not saying their kids are soldiers. In, right. In yeah, mind. we shouldn't copy everything that they do. I, I'm just saying it's the first thing that came to mind. <coughs> Maybe you're talking about Nigeria where they're all incredibly wealthy in advance. Not all, but like there's a higher standard of living there. So then that's the follow-up question. It's what does it take to be able to provide American women a semblance of you know, that village tribal culture where she, during birth and immediately after birth and for several weeks, maybe months following birth and even years, because this is just what women do in these communities is that they surround each other in their times of need. And a lot of people now in America will say, well, you have to be extremely wealthy. I don't buy that. Yes, of course, being extremely wealthy makes anything easier. It makes owning a boat easier. It makes starting a business easier. It makes educating your children easier. But it's not the only option out there. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me that having a support system is a function of how much money you have. Are we supposed to be buying friends? Right. That's not how that would work. You, I mean, you could afford a night nurse, but I don't think that's what a mom needs ultimately. Typically, how this would go is that a sister or a friend or the 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 mother's mother, the grandmother, the grandmother, the mother of the birthing mom, yeah, would be there bedside to help this new mom with the newborn and or other children in the house. And that's how it's supposed to be like, you're not supposed to do this alone. I think outside of the immediate postpartum era, when you have toddlers and then young children, And then even school-aged children, the way that our communities are designed now is that if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're doing this in isolation for at least five days a week in a huge house in a quiet neighborhood. You're the only one in the village. The village is empty. The village is empty because everybody's in the factory. And what makes that even harder is that we weren't raised to live in the village. We were raised for the factory. Our public schools, absent parents... The people who raised us were these 
indoctrination centers that were designed to groom us for the factory so that we would be productive for the factory owners. And those of us who decide to sacrifice and stay home or are even blessed enough to be wealthy and that allows them to stay home, whichever way, you're still in a village alone. The oncology doctor, Mm -hmm. she lived in a million dollar home. That didn't stop her from shooting her baby. And then you have lower income women who are maybe in more urban communities, neighborhoods. They're still alone inside their house in the village by themselves. No wonder they have to take an antidepressant pill. There's no one to talk to and women by nature are more social. And so it's so clear that the way that we were designed is that we were supposed to live among each other, taking care of our children beside each other in a village, outside, all day. But the way that things are structured now is you have to work really, really hard to even see another adult between waking hours if you're a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, that's right. And I've heard two different approaches to that problem. Going along with your factory metaphor, our education system was set up to train kids to join the dominant economy, which was conforming to either an office culture or a manufacturing system. The idea is that the idea of the nuclear family was a marketing tool Mm -hmm. to separate people Yeah, because you're easier to control if there's only four of you, a mom and a dad and some kids, versus a close-knit tribe with these interrelated dependencies. If you're dependent on the drugstore for your medicine and your food and direction on those things, and you're dependent on different offices and factories for your daily necessities and your economic well-being, then you're not going to care as much if the government comes and takes your land because you're not living off the land. You just live in a house on it. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if... And maybe this is just a consequence of capitalism and moving away from a more agrarian lifestyle. We just care less about those things that make you rooted to a place and your family. And that just makes having kids harder. Reject that. Okay. Um, I reject that three times over. (laughs) Because I see a lot of people try and blame these familial failings. So, for instance, in this specific case, lack of postpartum care on capitalism. Capitalism is just a market structure. It has nothing to do with how you interact with people around you in this way. I mean, if if capitalism incentivizes people to pursue their individual good at the expense of you stronger could, families. You could say that capitalism incentivizes human trafficking. Okay. So is is capitalism to blame for that? I mean, I would blame the people making Or is those moral choices. degradation to blame for that? I'm saying it's a chicken and egg problem. Jeez. We're not going to I'm not an anti-capitalist. I was just saying that the market forces that get people out of the home, not thinking of their home as the economic unit. And thinking about, oh, how can I climb the corporate ladder? That shift in focus is why we don't have good maternal care. We're not caring about mothers. We're caring about how I can get promoted. Just to underscore this point, this is why it's so important to understand that you can't have capitalism with godlessness, which is what we currently have. Like back to the human trafficking point, if capitalism incentivizes 
human trafficking, which one could argue, then it makes the point that a free market necessitates strong moral teaching. Yeah, I think to quote Milton Friedman, the prophet of the free market, you need freedom. It's a necessary condition for prosperity and happiness, but it's not sufficient. No, it's not. To make a metaphor, capitalism is like a dress, and without a hem on the dress, the threads will fray. But that doesn't make the dress in itself faulty. You just need to hem it. So hemming it is the moral teaching that completes the dress, and then you have a uniform fit to cover a person. But you can't have one without the other, but both together make something complete, an outfit. I don't want to make too much of the metaphor, but the hem is at the bottom. It's the base, the foundation. It holds everything together. Mm -hmm. It's the underpinning. I like that. Didn't Hillary Clinton have a book, It Takes a Village to Raise a Child? Oh, yeah. Didn't she have an article in The Atlantic in the past couple of weeks about the loneliness crisis? Are we coming around <laughs> to being Crooked Hillary fans? No, because Crooked Hillary fans, they're the people that say the therefore is that we need paid maternity leave, that we need like federal policies funded by taxpayers to provide this sort of care for new mothers. And like the people online who will say, our healthcare system doesn't do enough for new moms. It's this like, their alternative is like this sterile, impersonal. What does that look like? Yeah. Like, it looks like a check, but. Yeah. Nobody's holding your baby at 3 a.m. in the morning yeah. for you. Nobody's making you a warm breakfast. Those aren't true lasting solutions. No, that's right. And that goes back to the system. I won't use the C word. <laughs> they want women to get back to work. So they'll give you a check to shut up, not kill the baby and just get back to the mm -hmm. office. Yeah. Well, the left wants women to be laborers, right? So it's a lot cheaper for them to pay for women to travel and get an abortion as opposed to paid maternity leave. That's true. Well, they support both though, right? If they have to give you paid maternity leave, then they'll turn it into a moral crisis and they'll say, of course we support that. And if you don't, then you're horrible. But we still need you to get back to work, ma'am. Republicans are no better. One no, of the they're biggest, really not. The biggest crises to come out of COVID was women leaving the workforce. I think it was Ted Cruz. I can't remember. Welcome to episode 25 of Free State Podcast. I'm Laura. I'm Jace. Today, we are going to give you a review of the movie Oppenheimer. Uh, the new movie about the father of the atomic bomb from Chris Nolan, who you probably know from the Batman movies and Interstellar. I've realized through social media posts that it's like kind of like a political test, whether you go to see Barbie or if you go to see Oppenheimer. If you go to see Barbie and you post about it, you're on the left. But if you go to see Oppenheimer and you post about it, you're on the right. <laughs> but what about those who do the double feature? Are those the swing voters we keep hearing about? <laughs> I think those are just childless. I was going to say, those are just childless normies who have time and disposable income to go do whatever they want to on a Wednesday night. As always, if you like what you hear, consider sharing this episode with a friend. But rating and reviewing our podcast on Apple and Spotify really helps us with the algorithm. Helps us keep doing the show as more people listen to it. And if you want to tell us why we're wrong about anything, you can email us at freestatepod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm slash freestate.
Enjoy. So we got that babysitter, and we went and saw Oppenheimer this weekend. I didn't know he was Jewish. Me neither. See, and that was the embarrassing thing, right? I wanted to tell this story at the outset. Watching that movie reminded me of my first day in grad school. My very first class at Hillsdale was a class on Plato, and it was with my favorite professor. And he starts talking, and then he realizes that we're not tracking with whatever story he was telling. And he stopped, and he just said, Do you guys, like, know facts? (laughs) And none of us did. And so his (laughs) opening lecture on Plato turned into this long thing about 9-11 and how we changed regulations about cockpit doors and immigration and all this stuff. And I'll never forget that. But going into that movie, I realized I know nothing. I know no facts. No (laughs) facts, whatever. Fact-free zone. Well, when I try and like soften something to someone because I feel like I'm stupid, I'm about to ask a stupid question, I go, well, you know, I went to public school, so. (laughs) Yeah. I. Well, but so you would think having a professor say that to you your first day of grad school would inspire you to go and learn things. Nope. Nope. I still... (laughs) This weekend, I knew nothing about Mr. Oppenheimer going into the film. Yeah, that was when it was over. I said, well, that's what I'm going to accept as truth now. I have nothing to fact check that against. I I knew nothing about this beforehand. And so that's just going to be you were trying to think of something else the other day. And you're like, I can't remember if I read this in a book or if I saw it in a meme or if I heard it in a podcast or if it was a conversation you and I had. Yeah, it was after the movie because, I mean, ostensibly you all know at least that he was the leader of the Manhattan Project that Mm -hmm. created the atomic bomb during World War II. I had seen something that there are a lot of pirates and, it's not grave robbers, but people who go and ransack World War II sunken ships Mm -hmm. because the steel on those ships is not is stronger than what you can make today because it's not irradiated by all whatever the atmospheric radiation that came from the nuclear tests and the bombings. That was what where you couldn't cite. No, and I didn't know where I had come across that information, yeah. and then I Googled it to make sure it wasn't just a TV <laughs> show, and apparently that's a thing. Yeah. Um, the steel down there is better, and so people try to steal it, especially for radiation sensing equipment and medical equipment that has to be some kind of purity. So there is consequences. So there are long-term consequences. One of the themes in the film, or one of the factors he has to weigh when they're going to do these nuclear tests is whether they're going to start a chain reaction that lights the atmosphere on fire. Consequently destroying the entire world as opposed to a controlled blast zone. Yeah, just a giant bomb. Mm -hmm. Instead, he'd bomb the world. And then the very end of the movie, he's worried that he did start a chain reaction that would blow up the world because there was that arms race with the Soviet Union. There were other consequences. So maybe that's why jet fuel can melt steel beams. <laughs> just <laughs> Wait, to bring it back to 9-11. So, yeah, real quick. What is steel made from? Like, what's the... Iron and something. See, I don't know right? facts. Like, what do we you dig asking? underground to... Well, uncover you, steel? No, no, no. It's, How does this it's work? a refining process. Oh. I don't know what materials go into it, but I know it's iron and something. But whatever materials go into it were irradiated. Were irradiated. And therefore Thus, weaker. Got it. Or at <laughs> least not able to 
do some of the functions that we need steel for. Iron combined with carbon and other elements. Steel is an alloy of iron and carbon. I'm like rubbing my forehead during the movie, especially the beginning part, was like, ah, science. I just, I, hmm. science and hunting. I <laughs> really admire and acknowledge the necessity of the people who do the science and the hunting. I just don't want to have to do it myself. <laughs> like, I don't want to have to go out and shoot the deer and skin the deer so that I can eat the deer. Love me some deer jerky. I'm just not into all the work beforehand. And then the science. Like, I don't want to have to do all of that, but I really like, I don't know. What is science? Everything. Laundry detergent, for example. Like, I'm glad I'm glad someone did that. Do I understand it? Absolutely not. When I flip on the light switch, do I know how that works? Nope. Is it underground? I think so. Do I understand why or how? Absolutely not. Thanks, whoever did that, though. I wish it were underground, though, just to push but back. We still get electricity it? by hanging wires on poles outside. That's why the power goes out so much, because it's out in the weather but isn't it also you you put power lines underground no you don't and that's what is part underground of the then what's all the cords under the ground a lot of it's phone and fiber oh. optic cable and gas and water see most power school. lines are still above ground and that's why you lose power all the time trees falling on them or wind blowing them down and then septic and sewers also underground yes thankfully <laughs> I just, you know, you start to think about this stuff when you get older. <laughs> yeah, so for those of you who haven't seen the movie, it starts with him breaking with Albert Einstein and getting into quantum mechanics instead of relativity and the model of physics that came beforehand. Uh -huh. and so it shows Oppenheimer traveling to Europe to study this new quantum explanation of how physics works. And then he brought back that curiosity and those insights to America to start a physics program at Berkeley, and then that became the Manhattan Project. I thought all of that was fascinating, and I know I know nothing about math, and it that was a funny part of the movie. He left the math to other people because he hated math too, but he liked the theoretical side of it mm -hmm. in his mind. It said he could hear the music of how physics worked, yeah, and he let other people do the calculations. And that remind I had a friend in high school who was obsessed with theoretical physics. And so me just being there listening to him, not being able to give him any feedback, mm -hmm. it was kind of like having a bingo card from my old high school conversations because all of these famous scientists were part of the Manhattan Project. I'm like, oh, I've heard of Fermilab. Oh, yeah. oh. Mm -hmm. Richard Feynman, he's the one who got his PhD after turning in a one-page paper. Okay, he's playing in bongo drums. Got it. So that was cool. And I don't know if other people would have that experience. I know nothing about science, so it was just, I've heard that name. Cool. I'm smart. The movie did a good job of illustrating that sort of genius. What did you say? Hearing the music of... Mm -hmm. Physics. Subatomic. I guess not subatomic, but... And that type of genius that's so chaotic and is like pushing against the walls inside of someone's brain intimidates me, impresses me, but intimidates me in the way that like, I wonder if our boys will ever be that way or even if they have an ounce of that. You really have to teach them how to channel that or else they could use it for destructive purposes, obviously. 
Oh, yeah. But I don't want to beat it out of them either. I think no. so many people suppress that and you're not able to I, think. There's about probably things. consequences for suppressing that. But yeah. this is sort of a chicken egg thing for me, too. I don't know if that type of genius, I know we've talked about this before, but I don't know if that type of genius is born out of trauma or if it precedes it. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what makes a person have that particular type of genius that is so beyond, that is an anomaly to the rest of the population. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know if that's I'm interested their in IQ. what makes a person like that, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they have just some crazy IQ or even what is IQ. Is it some kind of autism? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, but they, I do want to say... He had far fewer vaccines than the rest of us did. <laughs> I do want to say before we go any further, the movie was phenomenal. It was... Really good. Overwhelming was the mm -hmm. word I keep coming back to. Just, it's the best biopic I've ever seen. It was gripping the entire time. There was drama and tension through the whole thing. They made you care about everyone, not just Oppenheimer, but everyone he interacted with. It was able to bring in high concepts of statesmanship and world-changing questions, but then even the personal drama of just the choices he made. And it was beautiful. And we it saw, was a little loud. It was a little loud. We saw it in IMAX. Yeah. And I, I don't know if they're trying to compete with Dolby, which focuses on the sound. Mm. The picture quality was astounding but it was just loud there was one point where i was looking around me to see if other people were covering their ears because i was like i don't want to be the that covers my ears but this is getting uncomfortable <laughs> yeah there's a scene where everybody's cheering for him after they drop the bomb and it clapping and stomping their feet on that the wooden it. floor and, mm -hmm. oh my gosh yeah super loud I, or i'm just old it was loud on purpose to illustrate sort of like the deafening effect of the moment and yes that is how it felt to him, overwhelmingly loud. Hmm. Uh, you got that sense. But the literal volume in the theater <laughs> was too much for the rest of us. And so you can see Christopher Nolan has outdone himself. He's using all of the techniques he's learned over his decades of filmmaking. And he really brings out that interior monologue without using words, just the way Oppenheimer felt at different points. I think he was able to capture that on screen really well. You're more familiar with pop culture and film than I am. What else has Christopher Nolan done? Uh, the Christian Bale Batman trilogy, Memento, The Prestige. Uh, he did Tenet. That was the first movie we okay. saw after COVID. I didn't like that one. Um, Inception. Oh, I liked that one. Let me go to IMDb now. I got to be careful because writing and directing is different than just oh, directing. So, yeah. Oh, Interstellar. Oh, that Dunkirk. one's so good. Both of those are great. Okay. I'm yeah. getting a picture, better picture of him now. He was involved a lot in Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League movie, which makes sense. I liked that. Oh, one thing watching the movie made me remember, and I forget this um, from time to time, but there was a moment in my life where I wanted to be part of a musical musical group or a symphony orchestra whatever that made that type of music for movies like the very like compelling big oh. with the timpanis and all the cymbal work and yeah. yeah 
They did a phenomenal job in this movie. And it was weird. The composer for this movie wasn't Hans Zimmer like it was in Interstellar. It was the guy who did the sound for Black Panther. All I can remember about the Black Panther soundtrack is that there was, was it Kendrick Lamar? Right. And it wasn't Kendrick Lamar. It was a different composer. (laughs) Ludwig Göransson. He did Tenet, Black Panther, The Mandalorian... Creed 2, Venom. So he's done yeah, some big budget stuff lately. Fun niche job that probably only five people can do and then there's no money in it for the rest of them, but, you know, fun to dream. Yeah, but he's good at it. And Killian Murphy killed it. If he doesn't get Best Actor, I guess they'll give it to Margot Robbie if they get rid of the gendered breakdown. In the opening in the scene, Award. I was like, those have got to be contacts, right? I didn't know that he actually had those icy blue eyes in oh, real life. Yeah. Yeah. I go back and forth with him about, I think he's overall handsome, but then I looked up pictures to just like, you know, corroborate this idea <laughs> after the fact. And he can look both like kind of scary because mm-hmm. he's so gaunt in yeah. his facial structure, the sunken eyes, especially. But like, so it's like some pictures are fire, but then some pictures are kind of scary. Oh, he was terrifying in Batman. He played Scarecrow. Mm. Yeah. And I think the first movie I ever saw him in, he was a serial killer on an airplane. I thought he looked good in this movie. He looks good with the shorter haircut. Yeah. And he does. I'm going to double check this. I'm pretty sure he's Irish doing an American accent. Yeah. Well, his name's Killian Murphy. So. Well, Well, you could be Irish ancestry. I think he's from Ireland, though born in Ireland. So he did a great job with that too. Cause like Rebecca Ferguson in silo had a horrible American accent. Mm, yeah, she did. Emily Blunt did a great job. Love her and everything. She'll always be the devil wears Prada girl to me. <laughs> um, I'll always imagine her saying, Oh, thank you. I'm on this new diet. Whenever I get hungry, I just have a little cheese square and then I don't feel like I'm about to die or faint or pass out or whatever she says in that movie. <laughs> And she's married to John Krasinski, right? I think so. Yeah. Because, yeah, they did a quiet, quiet place. place. Yeah. Another thing a lot of people critiqued about Oppenheimer was that it was hard to understand what people were saying. And I didn't notice that. And we watch a lot of shows and movies with, with subtitles. <laughs> and there were no subtitles in the theater. I but hadn't even thought of that. I didn't have trouble following it. And I'm, no. I don't have the best hearing. But I wonder if it's people who didn't see it in IMAX because it was so loud that maybe we could hear it. Yeah. But Christopher Nolan has given interviews since and said it's because he doesn't have the actors come in in post-production and re-record lines. Okay. There's a, I think it's called ADR. They record in a studio what they said when it was captured live so that the audio is clearer for the dialogue. Nolan doesn't do that for his movies. Uh-huh. And so apparently this was a big it's criticism. authentic. I suppose. Yeah. He wants to leave what he captured on the camera uh-huh. be what's on screen. Apparently this was a major criticism of Interstellar. I don't even remember not noticing. And I know at least one of my friends mentioned that he couldn't see this movie because there are boobs. There were boobs. And then you told me that and I said... I hadn't considered it even just because I'm so desensitized to that sort of content because it's everywhere now. And then I was like, they can show that in theaters because I hadn't even considered it till that point. Well, and when you made that comment, I was 
I kind of laughed to myself because you said, can they show that in theaters? They can show a lot worse in theaters, but we haven't watched that kind of thing in so long. It was kind of jarring. I didn't expect it. Well, it was weird, especially to watch that like sitting next to someone that I don't even know. It was a very like respectful older man that was sitting to my left. Mm -hmm. But then the sex scene came on and I was just like, hey. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, awkward for sure. And whenever that happens, I just look at you. But then it's just weird. And I don't know. I don't remember Christopher Nolan having scenes like that in his other movies. And I didn't know this was rated R until we bought the tickets. I just don't pay attention to that kind of thing. Yeah, I didn't either. And it's not that I shouldn't be more aware and paying attention. It's I won't watch things like Euphoria that I know are basically porn. Yeah. But stuff like this where I haven't heard anything. So I I think it's true that there are less fewer there are fewer sex scenes in movies nowadays whereas like back in the 80s you would watch those raunchy comedies because you knew there would be boobs at some point i say you like young teenage boys looking for boobs gotcha would know they could find some in the broad comedies i don't think that's true anymore and it's probably because of online porn but then at the same time why is it in movies at all then so what was the purpose of these scenes you could have shot them without showing any nudity. that's what i said next when we were having this conversation was he could have left that out just like in the scene where uh they're reviewing oppenheimer's security clearance and it shows his wife imagining yeah him having sex with this other woman but i like it didn't show nudity at that point no but like i wouldn't let the kids watch that no of course but i liked that scene because that's what that would have really felt like oh it was great that is exactly what would have been going on in her mind no it was fantastic he's testifying about having this affair and so all she can see is him having the affair and it was a great visualization of that internal process and Mm -hmm. the movie is full of that not nudity but the visualizing how someone's feeling in a moment it captures it really well but the sex scene showed something else other than just sex because she went to the bookshelf and picked something that was written in Sanskrit and forced him to read it while they were having sex and and it just kind of showed how his brain works and how their relationship was forged and that she could connect with him and his genius on this weird kinky level yeah and it was the most famous quote from him I am become death destroyer of worlds he associated that with his fathering the atomic bomb so in the middle of this affair Mm -hmm. that quote came out the first time in the movie and then it repeats again at the trinity test so i'm I'm just saying there was more value to that scene than just shock and awe yeah my only point being i don't know why he went for the r rating instead of filming it in such a way that it was without visible nudity i doubt that's anywhere at the forefront of his mind the rating of the movie i really appreciated all of the dissecting of the political conflicts yeah they did an excellent job with that and i did since i don't know facts i did look up (laughs) how accurate is oppenheimer before we started recording Mm, yeah most of it is straight out of the biography so it admitted places where the biography couldn't come to a definitive conclusion but the movie was ambiguous about that too so if you look at the communist that Oppenheimer had the 
uh, not affair with, but the commie chick that he dated. I mean, I think that's an affair. I guess since he kept dating her after he was married. Yeah. I think a one-time fling could be defined as an affair. Okay. Yeah. Jean Tetlock. When she died, it was unclear whether she died or was killed. They never talked about that. The scene in the movie. Yes, there's a flash. There's, there's a, a black glove yes. holding her head down. And it's supposed to be ambiguous whether he imagined that or whether that actually happened. Right. They did that on purpose. That was clear to me that mm-hmm. it was ambiguous, but they never brought it back up any yep. time later in the film. So. And it was never resolved historically right. either. Okay. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of stupid takes about the movie that it's standing up against a red scare and that he was viciously slandered as a communist and no one should have questioned him and i thought that was too stupid of a take i thought the movie handled that well since watching it i've spent a lot of time trying to digest and understand his political leanings coming from the standpoint that i think he was a quantum theorist first and what i've landed on is that he hasn't incredibly intellectual approach to politics like you can the way that I see it someone and I can disagree politically but I can respect their position for being intellectual and not simple not just a parroting of cultural influences like something they've thought through something that he is seriously sat with and thought through well like he said he read Das Kapital in the original German all three volumes or whatever to consider Marx's ideas. Mm-hmm. And they laughed at him at the Communist Party party, saying, oh, it's more of a vibe, not yeah. actually taking the ideas seriously. And what I've decided after thinking about this for three days or whatever it is, is that he has a lower risk tolerance politically than someone like you or I who is not communist and perhaps anti-communist. Yeah, safe to say anti-communist. But where we agree is that we are depraved people, including ourselves. Mm -hmm. You and I just have a higher risk tolerance in that we need to capitalize on that depravity for the benefit of everyone as a group. Yeah, and you're not going to extinguish that. So how do you harness it? And he has a utopian take that you need to use the state as a tool to extinguish that. Right. And that's the left, right. So he's more risk averse in this way than we are. Yeah. And his idea was that if we drop the bomb, people will see how horrible it is and that'll end war forever. Well, and that's optimistic, but I'm trying to just narrow in on the fact that he and all of these other scientists around him who thought like him, incredibly logical, rational, reasonable people... How do they come to this unreasonable political conclusion? Well, is it just a dilettantism thing? Like they don't, they're not in a position to actually make these decisions. So they're able to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. On No, I don't think it's flippant at all. I think it's been incredibly thought out. I think they're very diligent with their position here. Yeah, don't misunderstand me. I'm wondering if it's kind of what came out in the movie. He kept insisting that he was a theoretician and then sometimes your theory can only go so far and you have to put it into practice between his calculations about what the bomb would do and actually testing that uh, would that would be my take of it sure yeah you can theorize about communism and in theory it works right but in practical application it never has and never will yes 
Yeah. And back then, maybe they didn't know that. And that even comes out, like he's talking, talking about Lenin versus Stalin. And I think about this in religious lenses, too, where atheists and agnostics, I can really appreciate. We've been talking about this through music lately. We've been listening to Tool. <laughs> the minivan has a CD player, uh, like a six disc CD player and then a DVD. So we feel like very vintage and um, hipster that we're like offline in the minivan. So we found a, a store that sells um, CDs and records and records. And we found a Tool CD that has tracks that we like, but you're not supposed to listen to Tool tracks you're supposed to listen to tool albums according to them right that's right the singer resisted being on streaming platforms for years because <laughs> he thought people would chop up his music and it was meant to be listened to as a whole like a symphony mm -hmm. i mean i can appreciate that like start to finish i get it it's an experience we've just been talking about tools since we bought the cd another track vicarious that we've been listening to we actually took the time to look up the lyrics because we were like so into this song when we're listening to it and it's talking about depraved human nature and it's one of the lyrics is we need to watch things die from a safe close distance and it's talking about like the conditioning of horrible shocking news on tv and none of us feel anything anymore but we love to watch people suffer because we're all just sick and of course the band tool the members of tool are not religious people. They're anti-religious people. They make fun of believers. Seeming so, yeah. But they do it in a really intellectual way and in a way that admits that we are all broken and fallen. So even though their conclusion is wrong, like part of their theory is correct. And I would say that they're just mad at God. And they yeah. admit, if you were to really dig down and root out deep, they admit that he's real. They're just mad at him and they're trying to reject him which is why they're not happy. Whatever. Real rabbit hole here. Sorry, I'll put a bow on it. So in the same way that I can respect people like Tool when it comes to religious disagreements, I can agree with people like Oppenheimer and communists when it comes to political disagreements because at least they're doing it in a careful way. They're doing it in a very like thoughtful manner. Yeah, they're not just dismissing it out of hand without consideration. They've yeah. thought through it and they came to an honestly different conclusion. And I, you can have a conversation with those people. And the other part that I really liked is just from his political leanings, he was, in terms of foreign policy, he self-described himself as a pacifist. Oh, I don't remember specifically, but right. I know the thrust of why he was okay building a bomb using his theoretical physics was he was Jewish and the Germans were going to build a bomb. Yeah, at first he was under the impression that the bomb was going to be used against the Germans. Yeah, and so he wanted to stop Hitler. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll do anything to do that. Let's beat him. And the movie did a really good job of illustrating how with ideas or physical projects like this bomb, there is a real weight to, like, to progress. You know, they were halfway done building it and then he realized that he wasn't going to have it be used on the Germans that it would be used on someone else instead, and he didn't know, and then he found out that it was to be used in Japan, and then he didn't know until it had landed and exploded and detonated where specifically in Japan it had been used. Yeah. And so that's the problem with committing to these things that are controlled by the government, too. And he tried to say it's not the scientist's responsibility to determine how it's used. They're just 
doing science. He really struggled to pick apart the levels of ownership he had yeah. over the explosion and the deaths of the people from the bomb. I liked that as well. And then moving forward, once it was clear that the Soviet Union had the same technology, how to mm -hmm. engage that, whether through arms talks and disarmament or building up. And the moral implications and dilemmas of all of these ripples and causes and effects. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, everything in foreign policy is like that. Unless, what I'm trying to say is if you're not that torn up about dropping a bomb, you're either not being honest with yourself or you're mentally ill. Like yeah. you should have a moral conflict as great as Oppenheimer had when you are responsible in any way, shape, or form, whether you delivered the screws by truck to Los Alamos or you were President Truman who hit the button, you played a hand in murdering hundreds of thousands of people and was it worth it? You should have that conflict. Yeah, it's that was what I found most overwhelming about the movie is I'm so incredibly grateful that I get to benefit from the fact that they made that decision back in the 40s. But there's a huge cost there. I was just walking my dog the other night and thinking about it. I get to walk my dog in peace and how different it would have been if Hitler got the bomb first or mm -hmm. we didn't drop it. I couldn't remember what our friend Austin Peterson had said about he has like the libertarian take on dropping the bomb in Hiroshima. Hmm. And he talks a lot about Unit 731, um, which was a project that the Imperial Japanese military was working on during World War II. Our friend Austin talks about this aspect of it because it's so easy to vilify the Germans because they're white, but nobody wants to vilify the Japanese because they're Asian. I guess if we decided if Asian people are people of color yet, we kind of waffle on that point, right? I mean, in the wake of the Harvard case, I was definitely say, whether not. You're, you're, whether you're a university or not kind of depends. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on who the ultimate victim is. Anyway, 731, I was just looking at the Wikipedia page, was a covert biological and chemical warfare research and development unit of the Imperial Japanese Army that engaged in lethal human experimentation and biological weapons manufacturing during the Second Sino-Japanese War and World War II. And then you read on and it's estimated that there were upwards of half a million deaths as a consequence of these experiments. I started to look into specifically what happened with Unit 731 in Japan. And I could only get through about two accounts of specific torture methods that took place in this camp until... I realized that I wasn't going to be able to sleep at night if I kept reading. And one of these accounts, and it's important to go through this just to illustrate the reality of what was happening. And I know that eventually we're going to talk about whether or not we would have authorized dropping the bomb. So this just fills in the context a little bit more. Japanese military members were trying to study the effects, long-term effects of syphilis. And so to get prisoners, they would just go around and they would kidnap men, women, and children, including pregnant women and babies. And then they would imprison them. And then in order to study the effects of syphilis, they started by injecting women with syphilis 
And I'm sure they did it to men too, but the account that I read is that they started injecting women with syphilis. And then when they decided that they no longer wanted to inject them for whatever reason, maybe it was cost prohibitive or something, they would just rape them. Someone who was already infected would rape them and they would dress up in an all white garb. And the only thing that would be showing would be their eyes and their mouth. And then they would rape this woman. And often these women would get pregnant as a result. And then they decided to also study the fetus and the effects of the syphilis on the fetus because it transfers Mm -hmm. to the baby in utero. And when I say study, they would do live dissections. So they would cut the uh, woman open and study different organs without any anesthesia, of course. And often they would remove the fetus and cut the living fetus open and study its organs too. And... They were also interested in studying the effects of hypothermia, so they would take infants, like three-month-old little babies, and they would stab a temperature-reading needle into its hand and then submerge it in a bucket of freezing cold water, and I'm sure they died. And that's as far as I could read. Broadly speaking, I'm interested in what was going on culturally, obviously on an international level, to make this sort of, like, human experimentation interesting to these government organizations. It seems to me it's an outgrowth of the eugenics ideas of the progressive movement. I think it's even right to say that Hitler got some of the ideas from those guys back a few decades earlier. And so these kinds of experiments just naturally flow out of the idea that we're just molecules in motion or meat sacks walking around with no inherent dignity. And if you can somehow get that firmly in your mind and disassociate and just look at people scientifically, then it would allow all kinds of inhumanity. I mean, that really speaks to the power of ideology, though, because in such a short amount of time, you're able to really deconstruct a person's humanity and convince them to commit these sort of atrocities to like tiny infants to babies to innocent people i was listening to something else apparently out of the buddhist tradition and i don't know if that was part of the emperor worship that was going on in imperial japan but one of the ideas of human nature was that you're not born with a soul you kind of develop that over time Mm. and so that would be a prime foundation to view people as less than worth equal rights So if the science gave you an excuse, the religious tradition would too. People also bring up the rape of Nanking. Oh, I've heard of this, but I don't know what it is. Just after one of the fights Japan had with China, they... uh, Just, yeah. They had a massacre that lasted about six weeks, and they committed lots of war crimes. Public school. Why was China? How was China involved in World War II? See, don't ask me about facts, Laura. I have to Google that. (laughs) Okay, we decided we don't know any. Well, no, and I wanted to say, because I called my mom after we watched the movie, and I said, do you know anything about Oppenheimer? Uh Because I wanted to ask her first about the accuracy, and she said, well, I know we made the atomic bomb. What else? Yeah, so she didn't know either. So when the movie was over, there was a group of three older women who I had seen in the theater and they were sitting outside the theater. At first I walked past them and then I was like, you know what? No. So I turned around and I went back to them and I said, excuse me, were you in that movie? And they said, yeah. And I said, what did you think? And they were so happy. All of them, they were so happy that we stopped to talk. They said, thank you so much for taking the time to stop and talk because... Mm -hmm. 
we were just saying, I wonder what a young person thought after having seen that movie. And the first question I asked them was whether or not they thought it was accurate having lived, I, I said through the event. Near it. Near it. Near the event. They were small I wasn't children. doing maths. No, that's okay. They they were all born in the 40s. Yeah. And yeah, one woman said I was born on D-Day. Yeah. So. And it turns out they were all Jewish too. So that mm-hmm. had a different coloring of the way they experienced the movie. They were all, they were very nice. Mm-hmm. And they were so happy that we talked to them. People just don't talk to old people because they don't see them as human, like right. kids. And it makes me sad because it's like I'm not that far off from having painted eyebrows <laughs> like one of them did. <laughs> but they said that they thought it was extremely accurate. Yes. And everything I've seen since said it was accurate. The There's one ad-libbed line. There's a scene where Oppenheimer's in the room. I think it's with the Secretary of War. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're trying to pick where they're going to drop the bomb. And he probably didn't make it, make the comment as flippantly as it comes across in the movie. But one of the places they were thinking about bombing was Kyoto. And mm. the general said, oh, oh yeah. I honeymooned there. Yeah, so we can't bomb there. Yeah, he did honeymoon there. It's unclear if that's why they took it off the list. That's another thing we talked about is that we were impressed with the small details and how even the smallest of details were accurate in the film. And Mm -hmm. I said, the one that I noticed was the Russian scientist, Tiller. Was he Russian? Teller? Teller. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't know. I just, I guess by his accent that he was. Edward Teller. Hungarian. How dare you? Oh, I'm sorry. Isn't that Eastern European? Aren't they all kind of close together? Close, but. (laughs) Facts. Well, okay. Maybe this doesn't hold out anymore, but he was wearing his wedding ring on his right hand ring finger and that's what they do in Mm. russia and i was like wow they even did that but now i'm done no i mean maybe he was orthodox i have no idea yeah yeah maybe that's it we'll go with that you had something else though you noticed some other small detail that you liked oh they had jack quaid playing richard Feynman, and so he was supposed to be very quirky Mm. and they had him playing bongo drums or whenever they did the trinity test everybody had either sunscreen and these dark glasses on and he was just sitting in a truck mm-hmm. and he was going to watch it through the jeep and i just thought little details like that were cool it didn't seem like a three-hour movie and i know some people complain that the movie should have ended at the trinity test or whatever but i thought the time they took to go through the complications of dropping the bomb and even wondering how to handle Russia were worth it and well Mm -hmm. done and just as compelling and part of his life. I can't believe that I didn't go pee. I think it's the longest. Yeah, the longest you've gone since having kids. That's a long time. But we we bought uh, we bought a water bottle at the movie theater because I didn't bring a purse big enough to sneak one in. We're out of practice. We haven't been to a movie in a long time. And so we bought one and we spent almost $7 on this little 12 ounce water bottle. And then I was so compelled through the entire film that I didn't even open it, which is probably why I didn't go to the bathroom. And it's funny. Dehydrated you, myself for the sake of Oppenheimer. Yeah. It's funny you put it that way. That was Joe That's Biden. Stephanie's line, not mine. That was Joe Biden's review of the movie. Hmm. It was compelling. Oh, crap. Sorry. So I... If you listen to the intro of this podcast, 
I talked about how I appreciated the raw postpartum bit from his wife. But then for the rest of the movie, she like really hated her kids like that. Apparently kind of sucks when I was doing the fact checking. It didn't happen quite that way. They had asked Chevalier to take one of the kids when the other one was born just for a few days. But then Oppenheimer had asked someone to adopt their daughter so that she would have someone that loved her better or could give her a better life. So he recognized that he couldn't be the father he should have been. But what about the mother? I Huh. What I saw didn't mention her, but yeah, apparently. I mean, I'll take a self-aware parent over. Yeah. Not. And the people who did talk about her said she was mean, but I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I mean, she was married to a genius. That seems like a really difficult life. Yeah. That would be. And trying to evaluate whether the movie is worth your time. It definitely is. So much of pop culture is ephemeral, like a Marvel movie. I couldn't even tell you the plot of most of those. And I saw all of them leading Mm -hmm. up to Endgame or whatever. But this is a movie that will stick with you. I've been thinking about it every day since we saw it. It's like a meal. Well, I've heard from enough varied sources that it is close to accurate or accurate and so for that reason alone it's a really enjoyable substitution if you didn't learn about it in school yeah you don't want to read a 500 page biography yeah if you want an easy supplement to your education of american history or even world history um this is a good way to do it yeah and well and i was just thinking about providence and like god's plan for history and whatever and I've already talked about how immensely blessed we are that all of that happened. But how random was all of that? Not that God didn't have a hand in it, but... All of what? Just, I take it for granted that, yeah, America's the best, so we came up with the A-bomb and we won World War II and Uh we were on top Uh of the world. Just seeing how much contingency was in everything and how hard it was and how it shouldn't have worked. But it did. And all of those different people came together and everything had to go right. Well, he said, he talked about that. He, at the beginning, when he was starting to form the Manhattan Project, they were concerned that Germany or Russia would build a bomb before they did. Mm. And the American military general who was asking Oppenheimer, well, how will you get it done quicker? And he said, we'll use their weaknesses against them. Hitler hates Jews, but Jews have some of the brightest minds in science. And so he's not going to use them to help build his bomb, but we can use them to help build ours. And I know that's a cliche, right? But like the the embrace of multiculturalism in America, the true American idea is what helped us build the bomb first. Yeah. I mean, it's the same argument against uh, the stupid arguments about the gender pay gap. Why wouldn't we just hire women if we if employers yeah. were just trying to pay as little as possible? Yeah. Why wouldn't they hire all women and exploit <laughs> them? If corporations are really just sleazy, rich white men, then why wouldn't they take advantage of wage slaves and pay them 77 cents instead of an, an entire dollar? Yeah, and some of those rules about minimum wage and discrimination were pushed by people who wanted to discriminate because most business owners wanted to hire the best people for the job. And that often meant 
uh, former slaves and whatnot because they had all mm. of these skills. Nice. But they could compete mm-hmm. better than, I guess, more other uneducated white people. And so you had all these regulations put on to make it harder to hire. The more you know. The best people for the job. So you know some facts. So would you drop the bomb or bombs? Because there were two. So the way I think about this is probably annoying. Um, (laughs) We'll leave aside the arguments about whether World War II was a just war. So assuming that the war is just. There's a lot to pick apart there. Then what tactics are acceptable to win that war? If you're assuming that war just means you're able to do whatever to win, then yeah, then I wouldn't think about it. Should we also... World War II was the last war that was congressionally approved, right? That's my understanding. Yeah. At least, like, they declared war officially. And I know, right. I mean, that'd be great if we could get that today. So that's something. At least you have some consent from the governed. Oh, yeah. I mean, they say now, well, Congress votes to fund the war, (laughs) so that's enough consent. Yeah, sure. They also fund experimentation in the Wuhan lab in China. (laughs) What did you want to say as a preliminary? Oh, no, I mean, I just, I say that because that sort of colors the picture, at least for me. Like, if the people have given me authorization to go to war, that gives me a lot more leeway than if, as president or whoever is making this decision to drop the bomb unilaterally decides or uses an authorization of military force to send troops over and then I sort of use that authorization and take advantage of it and morph it into something grander than it's not. But like if they've, if Congress has gone ahead and said, we are going to war, we need to go to war. Like Yeah, total war. We've declared war on a country. We're going to go do whatever to make it stop. That's a pretty serious authorization. So the way I think about it is, and this even came out in the Oppenheimer movie, there were pictures of Tokyo that they had firebombed before. Mm -hmm. And they had said, I think... What's a firebomb? So just with normal conventional munitions. They had already bombed. And this happened in Dresden too, in Germany. Uh Bomb. If you drop bombs on cities... Innocent people are going to die, right? It's not like we're just bombing Unit 731. Yeah. And that was one major critique was Hiroshima and Nagasaki are arguably not military targets. Mm -hmm. So you're targeting civilian populations with the most destructive weapons imaginable. But at the same time, you've already been bombing cities with other bombs. And if you look at pictures, it's hard to tell. Like if I just hold up a picture of Dresden and hold up a picture of Hiroshima after the bombs, it's difficult for people to identify which is which. And so is the moral calculation, the size of the bomb, because it only took one bomb, is that worse? Or is the question whether we should be bombing civilians on purpose? Well, in the movie, they emphasize the point that the novelty of the new technology of the atomic weapon was also shocking. Yes, it was grand in size, but it was like we are technologically innovative and therefore more threatening. Oh, well, yeah. If you can wipe out a city with one bomb, that's way easier to do. And so it's a lot more efficient to wipe out vastly higher numbers of people. And then, I mean, the estimates after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was 200,000 and then more later from radiation. Yeah. And so that's a bigger scale. 
And then you have that lingering non-zero risk of lighting the atmosphere on fire. But the argument was this will make them stop. And I, I think the biggest stop fighting, I mean, the a lot of defenders of dropping the bomb said that Japan would have fought to the last man and we mm -hmm. were going to have to go keep going island to island and we were going to lose way more soldiers on our side. And so this overwhelming show of force nipped that in the bud. I tend to agree with that. I think my ignorance of um, world history and world culture has been displayed still from what I know about Japanese culture, especially traditional Japanese culture. What is it like samurai culture? Bushido. It's like they'd rather kill themselves than be humiliated. Yeah, there's an, a strong honor culture there. So there's a pretty fierce warrior mentality. And yeah, no doubt it would have been brutal and we would have mm -hmm. lost more men. I don't know how many. Just to get to the point, like just to answer the question, like I probably at that time, considering current conditions, would have authorized the bomb, which is crazy because I detest most any sort of military intervention currently. Yeah, I'm trying again. Yeah, I'm trying to think through it in the same way. Mm -hmm. Like is Japan going to invade? I know they attacked Pearl Harbor, but were they going to get out? Was it necessary to go all the way? and do that i'm and not sure aren't there theories that we provoked pearl harbor well and that's why i wanted to leave aside whether world war ii was a just war we're just okay. taking that all for granted i don't yeah know enough to get into that but and so the biggest critics of the bomb said oh japan was about to surrender anyway yeah i've heard that and i i don't know yeah who knows but okay assuming they weren't going to surrender and yeah this was the choice either you go island to island and fight to the last man or you drop this bomb I still don't know that we can call it good to incinerate and vaporize innocent uh, yeah, women and agreed. children. Yeah. But I guess we can apply the Machiavellian lens and say that it saved our side. And so it was... I think in redneck terms, that's called tough shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say dropping the bomb, you can't call it good, but it was effective. And again, we're blessed that we're the ones who did it, right? I hate that. I hate using like biblical terminology. Oh, well, okay. In well, the context of something that's so obviously evil and grotesque. I can rephrase it. Uh, no, I'm just I'm just saying it's like it's it's ick. It gives me an ick. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I so okay, to put it another way, we are privileged. Sure. We have <laughs> benefited immensely from that decision as horrific as it was. Yeah, I, I just oh yeah. Sure. So, well, and that goes back to the question of whether we should have done it. Do we hold all of Japan accountable for what Unit 731 did? And that justifies us wiping out innocent people when they were in like a theocratic imperial situation mm -hmm. versus America where there is consent to the government and you can hold us accountable for what our government does. We talked about that in this college class I was in it was in a fairly advanced foreign policy class and we were talking about sanctions and in reality sanctions hurt in autocratic governments they hurt in totalitarian governments they hurt the people more than they hurt the high level officials who you are seeking to cause pain yeah and that's just because it's like they're insulated from everything like that's just how these governments are structured there's no way 
to harm them because they do that on purpose. And so generally that's why small government libertarian minded people like Thomas Massey oppose sanctions in every right. Yeah. Even though you may acknowledge that a foreign state is your enemy, the innocent people aren't. It's the people in charge, but sanctions are an ineffective way to achieve that foreign policy goal. My problem is sanctions are war by another means, right? It's a way to inflict economic harm and fight without causing casualties at the barrel of a gun, right? So it's a way to pretend you're not doing what you're doing. It's a, It seems like an act of war to me to say no one is... It's like a military blockade, even though it's done Yeah, it is digitally. an act of war, yeah. That seems bad. If we're just <laughs> doing that willy-nilly... Yeah, presidents can just declare an emergency and then all of this happens. And then I've seen this recently in congressional debates. They're talking about decades-old national emergencies. Well, we can't get rid of them because there's a bunch of sanctions tied to this. Mm-hmm. And if we get rid of the emergency, then all this money gets unleashed. Well, this seems like a really stupid way to mm-hmm. conduct this kind of policy. We've planted, we planted this tree a long time ago, and now it's grown roots. We're singing all day, and you can't tame it. High tide, low tide, you know. Night time, the morning time, yeah. We're going strong.